Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 10, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 7. We're, we're going to finish up Deuteronomy chapter 6, move into chapter 7 and finish that up tonight. And last week we took another look at the Shema, the Hear, O Israel that is both the spiritual and national credo of the Hebrew people, and it is most certainly the central tenet of Christianity as well. It's just that it has been presented over the centuries as a New Testament doctrine that had never before existed. Now, now we finished up by looking at the middle part of Deuteronomy 6 in which a warning was issued for two main temptations that Israel would entertain. First, moving into the promised land with its wonderful abundance, and for that day, at least, easy living, and then forgetting the God who did it all for them. The warning is that Israel should remember that they didn't build those cities and villages where they would live. They didn't plant the vineyards and orchards from which they would eat. Rather, the Lord took it from the Canaanites and gave it to Israel as their inheritance. Now, think about that for a second. Okay. Although the word inheritance is usually only used in our society as something we receive when our parents die, in fact, it carries with it an important underlying meaning. And that meaning is to receive something of value that somebody else worked to achieve. It's a thing that we have in no way earned. It's achieved only by birthright or by the grace of someone else. The second warning is that the redeemed people of Israel who have now inherited by means of grace abundance and the privilege of a very special relationship with the God of the universe, they should not adopt and consort with the gods of the people among them where they'll live. Okay? And if the Israelite does not heed this warning, destruction is going to be the consequence. I spent some time last week connecting the real meaning of idolatry, which is the chasing after other gods, with what the actual God principle is behind that warning. And that principle is that idolatry speaks of the pursuit of anything that holds a place in one's life that's equal to or greater than Yehovah. There's been so much allegorical teaching within our Christian faith that it's easy to chalk this principle off to allegory as well, but that clearly is not the case here. The Lord speaks of the seeking after wealth and power and land and other things as being idolatrous if its place and importance is held too high for us. Now if we ponder it for a moment, we'll see that in a certain way, the worshipping of other gods is kind of a Biblical oxymoron. The worshipping of other gods is itself only an act of intent and of the evil inner self because in reality there's no other gods. There are no other Yehovah-like beings, not even any inferior ones. So we can send up the worship of these things all day long, but we are in effect worshipping to nothing. The problem is not that God is concerned that some other rival spiritual being is getting the glory that he should rightly hold. It's that our carnal and evil minds and hearts choose to disregard him and make something else, anything else, the ultimate or even shared goal of our lives. Today, when we hear the word idolatry, and, and tend to focus on the little wooden idols and clay objects that people of old made, that they made prayers to them, it misses the whole point. 
right? Anything that holds a place as high as or above the Lord God, he calls idolatry. And I really don't think he's interested in our nice, logical, rational counter-arguments. Okay? Our wife, our children, our wealth, our health, our retirement, our jobs, our safety and security, our hobbies all have the potential to become those other gods. And these gods are indeed the gods of other peoples. Peoples. Moses says, as a redeemed people, Israel is not to adopt these gods because they're for non-redeemed people. Well, so it is with us. The chasing after money and sex and pleasure and safety and security at any cost and so on, none of this is for believers. It's not that some proper level of these things is prohibited. It's that we must constantly examine ourselves to see if we deny the Lord His due place in our lives because these other things get in the way. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to read from 616 to the end. That's page 204 in the Complete Jewish Bible. From verse 16 to the end. Do not put Adonai your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Observe diligently the commands of Adonai your God and his instructions and laws which he has given you. You are to do what is right and good in the sight of Adonai so that things will go well with you and you will enter and possess the good land Adonai swore to your ancestors, expelling all your enemies ahead of you as Adonai said. Someday your child will ask you, What is the meaning of these instructions, laws, and rulings which Adonai our God has laid down for you? Then you will tell your child, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Adonai brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Adonai worked great and terrible signs and wonders against Egypt, Pharaoh, all his household, before our very eyes. He brought us out from there in order to bring us to the land he had sworn to our ancestors that he'd give us. Adonai ordered us to observe these laws to fear Adonai our God, always for our own good, so that he might keep us alive as we are today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to obey all these commands before Adonai our God, just as he's ordered us to do. Starting in Deuteronomy 6.16, Moses tells Israel that what they shouldn't do. After Moses has explained that the Lord is going to meet all of Israel's needs, and so there's no purpose for them to worship other people's god idols, nor should they chase after the idolatrous goals of the Canaanites, such as wealth and power and pleasure, Moses now explains what they should do. And what Israel should do is obey God and not to test him. And by means of demonstration and example, Moses points to an incident that happened very early on in the Exodus. The incident at Massah. Now, really, the vast majority of the people he is talking to do not have this experience, or rather did not have this experience at Massah, because they were either not born yet, or they were just young children. Yet it must be that this infamous happening had become part of the standard tales that parents told their children because Moses makes no attempt to reiterate the circumstances. The mere mention of the name Massah was enough for his audience to fully understand his point. But for our sake, let me jog your memories. Massah was the name given to a place where the Israelites lacked water to drink. And so they grumbled to Moses about it. And Massah, with an M, means to tempt. And the idea is that the people doubted God's ability to provide for them. And this verse in Deuteronomy says, integrating some Hebrew with it, do not nasa God as you did at the place called tempting. Nasa with an N means to put him on trial as a person accused of a crime might be put on trial. It does not mean to try God's patience, as it might seem to our minds in the typical rendering of this verse. 
So after Moses admonishes the people to not ever be so audacious as to actually put God on trial as the first generation of the Exodus did, with themselves, by the way, as his judge, rather this new generation should do what is called out in verse 17, which is to obey God. The idea is that Israel should not try to determine for themselves what's right or wrong, or whether God's laws and commands are optional, or they're fair. Rather, their job is not to question and decide, but to learn and follow those laws. And this thought is fleshed out a little bit more when it says to always do what is right in the sight of the Lord. This is as opposed to doing what's right in their own sight. And as we, followers of Christ, move along in both the Old Testament and the New, we're going to be exhorted on several occasions to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Well, here in Deuteronomy 6, we get the definition of what's right in the Lord's sight. And it is to obey His laws and commands. It has nothing to do with being nice or tolerant or pious looking or happy according to our thoughts and philosophies. And there is a divine reward for this obedience. It is that Israel will possess the land and that God will drive out Israel's enemies and thus things will go well for Israel. Now, resuming now the thought that he started with in verse 7, that was critically important that the law be taught to every succeeding generation, Moses says that the Hebrew children will eventually be curious about Israel's unique way of life and that they're going to ask their parents why they should follow such laws and commands. You know, typically if a child asks why, Something is done. If is 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 when they they have something to compare it to. Right? They ask why, when there seems to be another viable way that they kind of prefer. I mean, why do we gather in fellowship to worship God when all the other kids don't? Why do I have to eat my vegetables when I'd rather just have that large piece of cake over there? Why do we study Torah and the Old Testament along with the New Testament when all my friends just read the gospel stories about Jesus? I mean, it's the obvious differences that always make for curiosity. So, says Moses, when your children notice these differences between what they're required to do versus what the pagans are required to do, the Hebrew parents are to say the following to them. And it begins with saying, we were slaves in Egypt and our God freed us from them. That's the first thing you tell them. In other words, our history is what makes us so unique. And as a result of this unique history that's based on our relationship with Yehoveh, this is why we follow the ways of the one who separated us away from all other peoples for himself. And Moses says that parents are to say that after God has established them as a separate and unique people, and after God has redeemed them and rescued them from slavery to an evil taskmaster, and after he has sent them to a land all their own, then the Lord commanded them to uh, to observe his appointed times and his festivals, to revere him and please him. Therefore, says this great leader of Israel, it will be to our credit if we do what the Lord, who has done all these things for us, has ordained that we do. All of it. Let me point out that Moses saying to our credit, or in other Bibles, to our merit, means that obedience brings about goodness and well-being towards us as a gift from God. 
The things that he would like to give us, he's able to give us because of our obedience. It is the opposite when we disobey, trespass against him, and thus incur guilt before God. In this case, his justice doesn't enable him to give us the the shalom, the general well-being that he would so greatly desire to give to us. Instead, his unmatched holiness means he has no choice but to deny us, to discipline us. Let's move on to chapter 7 in Deuteronomy. Adonai your God is going to bring you into the land you will enter in order to take possession of it. And he's going to expel many nations ahead of you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations bigger and stronger than you. And when he does this, when Adonai your God hands them over ahead of you and you defeat them, you're to destroy them completely. Don't make any covenant with them. Show them no mercy. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughter to his son and take his daughter for your son. For he will turn your children away from following me in order to serve other gods. If this happens, the anger of Adonai will flare up against you and he will quickly destroy you. No, treat them this way. Break down their altars. Smash their standing stones to pieces. Cut down their sacred poles. Burn up their carved images completely. For you are a people set apart as holy for Adonai your God. Adonai your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his own unique treasure. Adonai didn't set his heart on you or choose you because you numbered more than other people. On the contrary, you were the fewest of all the peoples. Rather, it was because Adonai loved you, because he wanted to keep the oath which he had sworn to your ancestors, and that Adonai brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from a life of slavery under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. From this you can know that Adonai, your God, is indeed God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant, extends grace to those who love him and observe his commandments to the thousand generations. But he repays those who hate him to their face, and he destroys them. He will not be slow to deal with someone who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you are to keep the mitzvot, laws, rulings, which I am giving you today, and you're to obey them. Because you are listening to these rulings, keeping and obeying them, Adonai your God will keep with you the covenant and mercy that he swore to your ancestors. He will love you, bless you, increase your numbers. He will also bless the fruit of your body and the fruit of the ground, your grain, wine, olive oil, the young of your cattle and sheep. In the land he swore to your ancestors he'd give you. You will be blessed more than all other peoples. There will not be a sterile male or female among you. The same with your livestock. Adonai will remove all illness from you. He will not afflict you with any of Egypt's dreadful diseases, which you've known. Instead, he'll lay them on those who hate you. You are to devour all the peoples that Adonai, your God, hands over to you. Show them no pity. Do not serve their gods, because that'll become a trap for you. If you think to yourselves, these nations outnumber us, how can we dispossess them? Nevertheless, You are not to be afraid of them. You are to remember well what Adonai your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. The great ordeals which you yourself saw. The signs, wonders, strong hand, outstretched arm by which Adonai your God brought you out. Adonai is going to do the same to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, Adonai your God will send a hornet among them until those who are left and those who hide themselves perish ahead of you. You're not to be frightened of them, because Adonai your God is there with you, a God great and fearsome. Adonai your God will expel those nations ahead of you little by little. You can't put an end to them all at once, or the wild animals will become too numerous for you. 
Nevertheless, Adonai your God will give them over to you, sending one disaster after another upon them until they've been destroyed. He will hand their kings over to you. You will wipe out their name from under heaven. None of them will be able to stand up against you until you've destroyed them. You are to burn up completely the carved statues of their gods. Don't be greedy for the silver or gold on them. Don't take it with you, or you'll be trapped by it. For it's aberrant to Adonai your God. Don't bring something aberrant into your house, or you will share in the curse that's on it. Instead, you're to detest it completely, loathe it utterly, for it is set apart for destruction. There's an important principle that we must constantly refer back to when understanding the instructions that Yehovah has given and is going to give concerning how Israel is to conduct this coming holy war against Canaan. And it is that Israel is to proceed knowing that God is the God of all history, not just Israelite history. God is the God of all humanity, not just the Hebrews. That everyone other than Israel, by definition, worships false gods. The gods of their Gentile culture that aren't even existent. And therefore, they do not honor the true Creator God. Now, two key lessons should be noted here. First, that God is indeed the God of everything does not mean that every God honored by whatever name or characteristics he's known by is on some level actually honoring Yehovah. And two, because Yehovah is the God of everything and everyone, he has the right and authority to make the decisions and choices he is making. Yehovah has the right to dispossess the Canaanites from their land. And he has the right to transfer that land to whomever he chooses. Because it's his land. Now let's talk for just a moment about that first point. You know, it's become increasingly popular in our day, even among some evangelicals, to say it doesn't matter whether a person worships the name of Buddha, Allah, Krishna, or whomever, Because what these people don't know is that they're all actually just worshiping Jesus. Now, I don't know if it's from an insatiable desire for tolerance or peace at any cost or just scriptural ignorance that this notion is born. But that doctrine is so far from truth that it's hard to overlook it or even overstate it. If we accept that view, then we have to wonder whether such a thing as idolatry can even exist in our present age. Were the Canaanites actually, Canaanites actually worshiping the pre-incarnate Jesus when they were sacrificing their children to Baal? Were the Amorites merely worshiping Yehovah the Father when they performed ritual prostitution before the fertility goddess Ashtoreth? Is it just that they just didn't use the correct name? I mean, can you see the problem here? Okay, part of the issue is even the misconception of the Hebrew word Shem when it is translated in English to name, as in God's name. The word Shem means far more than simply the formal familial identity given to somebody. It more means reputation or nature or characteristics. To the Hebrews, names held great meaning because because embodied within a name was a set of attributes that the person with that name was going to be known by and was actually expected to uphold in some way, whether it's negative or positive. So understand that when the Lord is ordering Israel not to worship other gods, it's not only a matter of the Hebrews using an incorrect name to worship Him, it's that the characteristics 
assigned to those false gods are polar opposites from the characteristics that define the God of Israel. This also means that we modern day believers have got to be pretty careful when we willy-nilly define who God is and assign Him characteristics He doesn't have or take away those divine characteristics that we prefer He didn't. To make God a God who winks at sin but no longer takes action. Or a God who accepts homosexuality and bestiality because He loves everyone and places that love above His laws and commands. Or as a God who disciplines everybody except Christians. That's a dangerous error. To do any of this is to essentially define a God who doesn't exist. And then to attach the name Yehovah to that God who's created from our minds and fanciful doctrines, that my friends, is the purest definition of idolatry. I once knew a man who had been a churchgoer for decades. Matter of fact, he was in my Sunday school class. And he came up to me after one particular lesson and said that he was very offended by what I had to say that day and he was never going to return. And the issue was that I had spoken that day about the Lord's justice and judgment. And he told me that his God, Jesus, was a God of pure love and nothing else. So we had to be talking about two different gods. And true to his word, he never came back to the class. Folks, as much as we all love love, And as much as we all recognize that perhaps the outstanding characteristic of Yehovah is love, that hardly defines all of his characteristics. Among other things, God is a God of light, of creation, of salvation, of mercy, of judgment, of wrath, of fury but of gentleness. He is a God who is near, yet He's not of our world or universe or even of our dimension. He is not a man. He's not even a superman. He's an entire other being. He's totally unique. He will spark new life, preserve life, and destroy life according to His sovereign will and purposes. And what I'm listing here today today, is embarrassingly inadequate to define even a fraction of who God is. But the Lord has also given us enough of His characteristics and His nature by means of His written word and has shown how these characteristics are in perfect proportion and balance that for us to ever assign his name to another God whose characteristics are grossly uh, different and infinitely inferior is an abomination of the highest order. Therefore, verse 1 says that Yehovah your God is going to A, bring you Israel into Canaan and B, expel the current inhabitants in order that you, Israel, will possess it. And then seven nations are named that are going to be removed from the land and then Israel's going to replace them. Now, although we talked about this concept of possessing the land quite some time ago, let me briefly remind you that to possess does not mean to own. When it comes to the land of Canaan, the term possess is used because the land has always been set apart for special use by the Lord and it always will be. Over and again, the Torah and the remainder of the Bible is going to inform us that Yehovah is the sole and permanent owner 
of the land of Canaan. Mankind is certainly allowed to own, buy, and sell chunks of real estate. There's no real biblical injunction against that. Here in America, or in Europe and throughout most of the world, the concept of a man owning a piece of property is not only legal and foundational in virtually all earthly societies, but there is no scriptural prohibition against that concept. However, this does not apply to one particularly well-defined piece of land in the Middle East that the Bible calls Canaan and that is eventually called Israel. Because for that piece of land, the Lord is only willing to lease and not sell. And the Lord retains all rights to revoke that lease on that land at any time He determines. Therefore, Israel has no right to sell land to one another, let alone to a foreigner. That land is special, holy, set apart, and reserved for God as the headquarters of His earthly kingdom. Now we find this concept of possession versus ownership at the forefront of the laws of Jubilee, where land that has been so-called sold has to be returned to the original owner. This law only applies to the Holy Land. Or in more correct terms, the use of the land that has been transferred to someone else is eventually terminated and the use of that land is ultimately restored to the person who was originally assigned it. In the law, the price that a person charges for land is based only on what the land can produce between the time he leases it and the occasion of the next jubilee. Because it's only the use of the land that can be temporarily transferred. I hope you see the rather significant difference between own and possess. And why, when Israel was exiled from the land, the Lord was but revoking Israel's use of the land as a discipline. And he was also only transferring the use of the land to Israel's conquerors for a set time because these conquerors were God's proxy to punish his people for him. And it's also why this abomination called the roadmap to peace or the defunct Oslo Accords or any other so-called peace plan for the governments of men to force the transfer of ownership of portion of God's land or even to transfer possession of portions of that land from Israel to somebody else this is disobedience and arrogance at the highest level and you know what it's just daring God to react for a sizable segment of the church to back such plans is a painful thing for me to witness So what we have in Deuteronomy chapter 7 is Moses addressing a series of very specific issues that the Israelites will face as they invade Canaan. And in addition to the issue of land possession is that what are they to do about the people who currently live there that have to be dealt with? And the Israelites are told in a nutshell that they're to grant the Canaanites no terms and give them no quarter. They're not to intermarry, and this means no Hebrew sons marrying Canaanite women, no Hebrew daughters being given in marriage to Canaanite men. Further, whatever Canaanites might remain in the land are to have their altars of sacrifice to their false gods torn down and destroyed. Any kind of religious pillar or monument to one of their gods is to be smashed. And whatever idols or images of their gods that can be discovered are to be thrown into a fire and burned. I just don't detect much tolerance there. Now exactly what does all this amount to? Is this about, is this ordering, merciless genocide? First, giving the Canaanites no terms and no quarter means 
no agreements or peace treaties are to be made between Israel and the Canaanites that would allow them to remain there as sovereign societies. It means that Israel is not to essentially do what is always done in these situations since time immemorial, and that's to allow a foreign king to remain king over his people in return for taxes and tribute and labor paid to the conqueror. In this case, it would be Israel. Further, those Canaanites who refuse to bow down to the God of Israel are not to be allowed to remain in the land. Rather, they're to be forcibly expelled. And if they instead insist on fighting to the death, they're to be accommodated. Now, despite the thought that many rabbis would like to leave us with, and the overly simplistic tales... We've all been told about how the Hebrews did not intermarry and for long stretches of time stayed very pure in their gene pool. Nothing could be further from either biblical or historical reality. Hebrew men just couldn't seem to resist the charms of the various paganite, pagan women and Canaanite women who constantly brought them home with them and integrated them into Hebrew society. In the book of Judges, we even see the great Samson marry a Philistine woman. This, though, was just the tip of the iceberg. Because in the Middle Eastern cultures, Israel included, a girl didn't have a whole lot of choice in whom she married. Her father made that determination. And often it was based on how big of a gift a man might offer the father in return for his daughter's hand in marriage that a father would offer his daughter to the highest bidder is bad enough. That an Israelite father would allow a non-Hebrew to be one of the bidders was forbidden. But it happened regularly and eventually quite often. The problem with a Hebrew man marrying a foreign woman was that, except in rare cases, she would bring with her the pagan ways of her tribe, and along with it, the family pressure and influence from her kin for her Hebrew husband to at least be tolerant and respectful of her and their beliefs. We will eventually see the revered King Solomon marry literally hundreds of foreign wives, be openly tolerant of the worship of their pagan gods and even arrange for altars to be built so that they could sacrifice to their false gods. For a Hebrew woman to be married off to a foreign man was a terrible predicament for that woman because once she was wed to that foreigner, she lost her status as an Israelite. Further, the children that she bore would now be Gentiles. They'd be apart from Israel now. The redemption that she had as a birthright was gone. And the redemption of her children that they could have had as a birthright was also gone. So the effect of disobeying the command not to intermarry with any one of these seven named people groups was far-reaching. Now, as for these seven nations of peoples listed here, I'm not going to try to carefully define them all. It would just be much too complex for our purposes tonight. Most of them were but tribes descended from Canaan, grandson of Noah, and so could all rightly be lumped together and given the general identity of Canaanites, as they often are, in the same way that a man from the tribe of Judah or Reuben or Benjamin could rightfully be called an Israelite because he was descended from Jacob. But that's not the case for every nation of the seven nations that are specifically mentioned. Some of these names are less about tribes and more about simply describing a region that they inhabited. Which is which isn't important for the moment. What is important are the reasons for this drastic action 
being called for by God, the prohibition against peace treaties, against tolerance, against intermarriage. And it is that the Israelite children, meaning descendants of future generations, will be drawn away from God and into idolatry. Now please note, this statement is a statement of fact. It's not some idle threat or hypothetical warning from God. That is, the Lord is saying, if you do any of these things I'm telling you not to do, it's a 100% certainty that the result is going to be your falling away from the true religion and an adoption of paganism. It's certain. Now please hear me. Any of us who've lived long enough have at one time or another succumbed to this reality. There is absolutely no way we can marry a non-believer or buy into the ways of the non-believing world worshiping their God, so to speak, or even get close enough to the ways of the world to gain the benefits while trying not to get sucked in without some pretty tough consequences. It's going to happen. I've heard so many Christians say when they decide to venture down this dangerous path, well, I know it's dangerous, but I'm strong in the Lord, so it'll be okay. Good luck. See, the problem is that what we're saying is that whether we think that way or make that kind of statement, we're believing that we can do the very things that the Lord says don't do it, but somehow He's going to turn around and honor it and make sure none of those bad things happen to us. Do we often go long periods of time where it seems we've gotten away with it and we kind of breathe a sigh of relief? But then suddenly, that shoe falls. And then we recognize the unchanging nature of Yehovah and the immutability of His laws. This is what God is telling Israel. And He's telling everyone who intends to rely on Him the same thing. In the end, the fundamental prerequisite for Israel's survival in Canaan was the exclusive worship of Yehovah. Disobedience and idolatry would automatically bring divine calamity. The nature of that calamity would range from constant harassment coming from foreigners to famines to wicked Israelite kings who would be oppressive to their own people. And on a couple of occasions, outright eviction from the land, exile. So Moses explains a couple of facts of life. He says, first, don't get too big for your britches when you do get possession of the land because it isn't going to be by your military might or acumen. It's not going to be because we have an overwhelmingly large number of soldiers that we're going to win. It's only because the Lord has favored Israel and by definition discriminated against the indigenous people of Canaan that Israel is actually able to receive victory in such a monumental task. And second, remember that this is really all about the fulfillment of an oath, a covenant, that God made to the patriarchs. That Israel is receiving Canaan as their sole possession. But Moses warns, all of this can be reversed for a time if they fail to observe the Lord's commands. Starting in verse 12, more reasons are given for Israel to be obedient. Sometimes these passages remind me of talks I've had with my kids, particularly when they were growing up. Most parents will reminisce and speak of talking to their kids until they're blue in the face, trying to get very important messages across. They talk, we'll, we'll, we'll all talk about looking into those blank, disinterested faces with those faraway stares, saying the same thing in several different ways in hopes that the nuances of our message will finally fit home and that somehow our beloved offspring will finally heed some advice and avoid serious trouble. Somehow I picture Moses looking into the thousands of faces 
knowing full well that almost as soon as he ends his message, rebellion begins. But it's not going to be for not trying. And the Lord lays out the mercy and abundance that is awaiting Israel under the conditions he has established. The women will be fertile. Israel's population will blossom. The soil will produce. The animals will thrive. Serious disease and pestilence will not be allowed to injure the Hebrews, but it will strike down their enemies who live right next door. The Lord will cause Israel to be greatly victorious in battle, but this is only so long as the Israelite warriors show their foes no pity. Ooh. That really goes against the Christian grain, doesn't it? That's a tough one. Well, just refer back to the God principle I laid out at the beginning of this lesson. The Lord is the Lord of everyone and everything. The Canaanites are His creations just as much as Israel, and what He decides about their fate is up to Him. It's just that we've been well-schooled to think of the concept of loss and calamity, today at least, more in terms of shrinking bank accounts, or a home being repossessed, or losing our job, or perhaps even a loved one dying from a terrible accident or a fatal disease. But here the Lord is talking about wiping out entire nations on a wholesale basis to accomplish His will of giving the land of Canaan as He has promised to Israel. The reality is what has led to this implied, if not outright stated doctrine that the God of the Old Testament is quite a different nature from the God of the New Testament is something we have to look carefully at. I remind you that the God of the New Testament is going to continue this holy war upon people who are not His elect on a scale unimaginable to our human minds. The battle of Armageddon is going to be the bloodiest, most devastating ending to the holy war that begins with Joshua at the helm. And hundreds of millions are going to die with no apologies from the Lord. And who's going to be leading that battle? Who is going to be causing those mega-deaths? Yeshua. Our Savior. The Messiah. The so-called God of the New Testament. It's going to make what we read about in Deuteronomy and then Joshua. It's going to make what went on in Canaan 3,000 years ago look like child's play. Starting in verse 17, Moses addresses what he knows the people are thinking. How does he know it? Because he saw the same thing about 38 years earlier. It is that the people really kind of like the idea of having a wonderful land all their own, but they don't much like the part about having to fight. They don't care for the part about maybe losing their lives in battle in order to get it. 38 years ago, the people had been so afraid of war that they betrayed Yehovah. And the consequences are well known. So Moses is trying to ward off those very natural fears that this younger generation might have about conquering Canaan. Therefore, he tells Israel to bear in mind what God did to Egypt. Because he's going to do essentially the same thing to the Canaanites. So don't worry about it. Then Moses tells them, don't be concerned or upset when it takes a little longer than they had hoped for to conquer Canaan. Because if too many Canaanites get killed too quickly, and the land is purged of them too fast, Israel won't even have the necessary time to establish security. So wild animals will move in. Wow, this sounds a little bit like what we encountered in Iraq. 
See, what the Lord is doing in the instructions for attacking, attacking Canaan is very practical, even though it goes against human tendencies. In Iraq, all now agree that we invaded and won rapidly and in an almost miraculous fashion. It was actually a little bit too fast. We got a little bit big-headed about it. We didn't take the time needed to conquer smaller zones, establish secure areas, then move on and take another and do the same and then another. We tried to swallow the elephant in one bite, and it came at a pretty great cost. The wild animals, Al-Qaeda and those other terrorist groups, moved in because we did it too fast. Now, at the same time, just as God and Moses know that the people are going to be short-sighted and impatient, so Moses is preparing the people for what will happen. This is the identical reason that our uh, government decided it could not go slow in taking Iraq because Americans want fast results and instant gratification. The best and most fruitful way of attacking Iraq would never have been accepted by an American or world public that wants a video game conflict. Over in an hour and nobody actually gets hurt. Believe me, I'm not making a political speech. I'm just trying to use an illustration that most of us recognize that is quite in parallel with what Moses and Israel were about to face. However, says the Lord, don't let this slower speed seem to you as though maybe things aren't going well. Rather, I will deliver the Canaanite kings up to you and throw the Canaanite armies into complete panic so they'll often just run away. The victory will be so complete that as it says in verse 24, not even the names of the kings and military leaders will be remembered. Then Moses returns to the two aspects of idolatry that we've talked about on a few occasions. Don't take their idols because you're liable to worship them. And don't even take the gold and silver they made out of because of the desire for all that gold and silver is just as idolatrous as the idols themselves. And as the Lord says in verse 26, he utterly detests anything that Israel or we might bring into his presence that rivals him. Therefore, whatever that thing that could be a rival to him is, it must be destroyed. Not because God's a miser or a curmudgeon, and he doesn't want us to have nice things, he doesn't want us to have a comfortable life. It's because... It is such a super danger to our relationship and our harmony with him. We'll get into Deuteronomy chapter 8 next week.